Hi, I'm Sakai Machachi and this is the Scan Sparks podcast. I'm an artist based in Glasgow and I'm working with the Scottish Contemporary Arts Network as their artist policy officer. The Scan Sparks programme is exploring grassroots inequalities focused working in the contemporary arts sector. So I'm talking to people about their experience and approaches to creating, developing and sustaining grassroots projects. Today, I'm talking to Brianna Pagado, the new creative director of Fringe of Colour. With over seven years of experience, Brianna is a creative producer who has been named one of Scotland's top 10 social innovators by Third Force News for her work founding the Edinburgh Students Art Festival, ESAF, a social enterprise supporting emerging creative people that work to increase public access to the arts. Brianna is joining me today to discuss her work on both ESAF and Fringe of Colour and what it means to found, lead and sustain grassroots projects within the arts sector in Scotland. prompted you to launch your project? A couple of things prompted me to launch ESAF as we as we nicknamed it. Um, I think the first was that I personally felt really creatively stifled. For someone that had access to higher education, that was well-traveled, that had a lot of privileges for many reasons, but still even with all of that privilege and access was struggling to tap into and find creative community. I remember at uni, I wanted to take some outside courses at Edinburgh College of Art and the merger had just happened between the University of Edinburgh and Edinburgh College of Art. And I went in to ECA to speak to an administrator to ask if I could take some outside courses. And she full on looked me up and down and said, uh, you must be new here. And I said, sorry. She said, I, you know, you can't do that. I said, well, the merger already happened. She was like, yeah, not if I have something to do about it. <laughs> and I said, well, I'm, I'm a University of Edinburgh student. She said, yeah, but you're not an ECA student. And that wasn't just my experience as a black woman. A lot of people I know who were not black and were not women had a similar experience. And though there were university societies, though I could take classes outside of university, I just found it really difficult for me to have a creative outlet. And I found that a lot of my friends at university were studying you know, economics, accounting, finance, politics, whatever it was, something not in a creative field, but were incredibly creative people running club nights, doing portraiture, um, you know, creating events for creative spaces. And so I got to my final year of university feeling really creatively stifled, being a person that still considers themselves an artist. I was a painter and a musician, but didn't have any space for that throughout university. And 
I was elected president of Edinburgh University Students Association in 2014. I was the first black woman to become president, be elected into that role, and it's 130 year history, maybe 150, depending on who you ask. And part of my election manifesto was to set up a student run mini fringe festival. And that was off the back of that feeling of feeling really stifled creatively, not having access to the arts in the way that I that I wanted to, but also it was off the back of a year of conversations with students across Edinburgh University about their their feelings and their desire to do this. Now, when I set up the festival, I had been in post for a couple of months, and this is an odd thing to say, but there's this kind of unspoken rule that the student president has a meeting, catch-ups with the principal of the university. And you kind of have an opportunity for your asks, you know, what you're going to ask the principal to support in that very first meeting. And that was one of the first things I asked him. And at the time, our principal was the chair of the Fringe Society. So I sort of said to Sir Professor Sir Timothy O'Shea, what do you think of a mini Fringe Festival? And he loved it. And I said, will you give me some money for it? And I remember him asking me how much I wanted and I think I just said 10,000 pounds. I had no idea, you know, I had no idea what I was doing. And he, he gave it to us as a student's association. And what was really important about us setting up that festival was that it wasn't just Edinburgh University. It was all four universities in Edinburgh. It was Edinburgh College. It was addressing, it was completely student run. It was run by students across all of the institutions. It was run by student presidents, sabbatical officers across all the student unions. And it was about collaboration, support, access and not having to prove your artistic value your artistic skill this was open to anyone who wanted to just test something out to express themselves and it was really incredible because it was entirely volunteer and student run and we were, were just doing it ourselves it was very diy um and the fact that we learned through that process that we were gaining skills we started to investigate and ask questions of the people participating in the festivals. So in our second year, we asked questions around what barriers are you facing? We asked people questions about their dem demographic background. We started to ask people if they felt prepared for life as an artist or a creative person post education. And we opened up the festival to mean student in the widest Term. So you didn't have to be a registered student at a further or higher education institution because we knew the barriers that created as well. So a lot of what we were getting out of these conversations from students was that particular institutions were not teaching them anything practical about how to sell their work, how to produce their work, how to approach an agent or a company, um, where, to, where to even show their work, how to sell it, how to price it. You know, it, it was completely multi-arts and multidisciplinary but the skills that were lost were really apparent. And the institutions that did it better than others were also really apparent. And the confidence level of students across institutions was also apparent. So that inequality just across educational institutions in Edinburgh, um, that was something that really drove me. And I've always been driven by inequalities that everyone faces, but really getting a kind of frontline one-to-one in-person view of how this was impacting the next generation of creative people in Edinburgh and in Scotland more widely, but this really focused on Edinburgh was what the Edinburgh Student Arts Festival was about. So it kind of grew from 
a week-long festival in February to a month-long festival in February that was focusing on how to support people to gain skills, find community, um, find pathways out with their institution after graduation or whenever, even if they didn't graduate or attend an educational institution. Um, and then what skills were being lost and the ways that emerging creatives of any age, because it wasn't about age, it was about that starting point in someone's creative career or creative practice that, you know, what was missing to equip people with what they needed. Wow, it sounds like such an incredible project. It's just the scope of it and the fact that you were really looking at so many different areas in terms of what, like you could see what was missing, but you were also really um, responding to what people were saying and really taking in as much information as possible from the people who were involved. And I love that you had the guts to ask for that £10,000. Um, that's, <laughs> that's such an incredible move. Um, I was going to actually ask the next question around what kind of support that you received from institutions or organisations at the time, but you've kind of covered a little bit of that. Could you give any more information around that? I definitely could because there was so much and something I didn't mention earlier, which was so important, was that the Edinburgh Student Arts Festival was a social enterprise and it was a social enterprise at a time that social enterprises were growing in popularity in Scotland. Obviously, organisations that I received support from like the Melting Pot, which is Scotland's oldest social innovation hub and actually has one of the oldest social enterprise incubator programs in, in the world, not just in Scotland. Um, I won um, a kind of place on their social innovation ideation awards. It's now called the Good Ideas Academy. And because I'm a master networker, it's just how I was raised and it's just, maybe it's being American. I don't know, I, I have a lot of theories about this. Um, I reached out and signed up for every program possible from Just Enterprise to the Edinburgh Social Enterprise Network, to the social um, SIE, so the Scottish Institute for Enterprise. They had a young ideas competition. I had support from the University of Edinburgh incubator program called Launch Ed or Launched. So there were advisors there that supported me um, with writing a pitch deck, applying for funding, signing up for pitching competitions. I really ended up in this strange startup entrepreneurial social enterprise world where elevator pitches and pitch decks and competitions and applying for things and going to networking events became my life. I really wasn't planning to do that. And then that was on top of the support from the cultural and creative sector. So I signed up to Creative Edinburgh. We partnered with them. Um, I went to Creative Mornings events in Edinburgh and later on became the executive director of Creative Edinburgh <clears throat> and then was also the speaker coach of Creative Mornings. So you can see they were communities I really loved and cared about. But I have to say from Entrepreneurial Spark at the World Bank of Scotland to the Good Ideas Academy, I probably have been on every social enterprise startup incubator program that I was eligible for in Scotland. And it was bizarre, but there was a lot of free support. There was a lot of training. Um, there were funding opportunities, but as I said, that was 2014 or 15. And that was a year, I think, I think in that year in 2015, the number of social enterprises registered in Scotland went up by 90%. So if you can imagine the competition was so high and so fierce and so stark, that it was really difficult. Like it was really challenging to win funding or to pitch for money against social enterprises that were um, 
more profitable or more international. I really struggled setting up an arts organization that was a social enterprise because people would constantly ask, well, what's the social impact? And it was like, it's public access to the arts, but this is actually about skills and training for, for young people and emerging creatives. And it's about a skill set. But I think a lot of people had very limited understandings of what creativity was, what the creative industries were, what its potential is, because my background is sustainable development as well. So I looked at ESAF as an experiment around what's an alternative business model for a not-for-profit organization that's community-led, that has a social impact, but that's not profit-driven. And so that's where my kind of environmental social impact side of things was shaping the way ESAF was run, set up, and grew. But I do think that even now we're having conversations about the future of our society, um, government institutions, institutions in general. In that time period, um, innovation became really popular as well. You know, I, companies like IDEO, design thinking, product design, service design became really popular in the private sector. So it was a really, and still is, incredible time to be doing it because data, innovation, entrepreneurship, social entrepreneurship, and then the creative industries were growing rapidly. I mean, at the time, and I think this might still be true, the creative industries were the fastest growing sector in the UK. So I just found that it was a really important, challenging, complex, exciting moment to be doing that work, but it was very difficult to actually get the right support because all of the support out there was for a specific aspect of what we were doing, but could never capture, encapsulate, understand exactly fully what it was that Edinburgh, the Edinburgh Student Arts Festival was trying to achieve. Okay. And it's like when you're trying to do something that is new, that is innovative and that is pulling from certain aspects of something else, but is fundamentally based in an area that isn't really understood. That must have been very, like like you say, very difficult. Um, but you did have institutional and organizational support from a few um, organizations. And I was just wondering if you have any, any peer support. So like, who were you working with? Was it just like, because you were in, ESAF was a, a if correct me if I'm wrong, but ESAF was a part of the student associations already. So was it just you as kind of one of the as a chair of that committee, along with all the other people who were involved? And did you have other people out with that that space that you were working with? Yes. So ESAF was set up while I was there at the students association, and when I left, I actually took it out of the students association. So I asked for permission for me to take it on and run it. But when it first was first set up, we had a committee of, I think about 12 people. We had sabbatical officers from all five of the student unions, Edinburgh College, Napier, Harriet Watt, Glas um, Glasgow, not Glasgow, Queen Margaret <laughs> and Edinburgh. And then we had student volunteers across different parts of the committee. So we had a main festival committee. And then we had subcommittees that looked at curation and visual arts, performing arts, marketing and events. And then we had a stall market <laughs> and we had we had speakers. So that's kind of how it was organized at first. When it was taken out of the Students Association and I decided to set it up and run it as a social enterprise, excuse me, it was myself and another co-founder called Johnny Elmer, who was the vice president at Queen Margaret Students Association or Students Union. 
And that didn't kind of last very long because Johnny went on to do other things. And that was quite a challenging work relationship just in terms of Johnny's work ethic and, and how he saw the festival in mind. So that was really interesting. Um, but each year we opened up applications for a committee. So each year I was supported by at least 12 to 15 other volunteer student artists and creatives. A lot of them are postgraduate students on QMU's event management and festival management program. Um, a lot of them were just across different colleges and, and unis. Um, but also in terms of institutional support, we built our program in the second year around a partner series. So to kind of respond to the challenges we were hearing a lot of people were facing to have a kind of career in the arts or practice in the arts. A lot of them were saying, well, even if I don't wanna be an artist, I'd like to work in the arts, but I don't really understand what types of jobs and roles I could have. So we worked with Edinburgh Printmakers. We worked with um, um, the auction house that at Lyon and Turnbull, we worked with, I mentioned Creative Edinburgh Codebase, quite a lot of national and local arts bodies and institutions to do behind the scenes events and panel discussions so that people could get a better sense of what that might a creative career might look like not as the artist per se um, but definitely it was entirely a collaborative collective consensus based committee based effort and I think legally I was the only named director on company's house and we had some other named directors but no it was really led by the artists and young people and creatives that were starting off in their career um, to make the festival happen. And the last kind of number of partners that I'll mention were our venues, because if it weren't for the Biscuit Factory, Assembly, the University of Edinburgh Students' Union, um, at the time there was a, a studio and gallery called Gayfield Creative Spaces, um, if it wasn't for all of these venues that supported us each year, either in kinds or with in-kind staff time and support because we did pay for these venues. Summer Hall was another. The festival wouldn't have happened. So there were a lot of partnerships with local galleries and venues um, that made it uh, possible because they believed in what we were doing. That's incredible. It seems like there was just like so much reach um, for the project. I, and I feel like I, I'm just learning this like really for the first time. So I'm I'm kind of in awe just listening to all the work you were doing. And and obviously it, um it must be so difficult to to sort of um to juggle all of those different things and, and all of these different relationships and the the um budgets and all of the things that can that go into making something at that scale happen. Um, what were the biggest challenges in, in the sort of starting up of, of it when you moved it into social enterprise? What did you find quite um, challenging? The biggest challenges were just for me personally, because I think I tended to take on all of that and not let it um, filter into the rest of the team. I, I don't really work that way anymore because I like to be more transparent and open but I wasn't paying myself. So I was working freelance and part-time um, throughout. So I was working pretty much 80 hour work weeks, no exaggeration. And I was freelancing, working for the National Theatre of Scotland. I was working for Creative Edinburgh. I was working for YWCA Scotland, the Young Women's Movement, uh, custom, well, maybe not custom lane at that time, but I was really having to bounce around to cover my own costs. And if it wasn't for the fact that I was living with my partner and he owned his flat or his parents owned his flat and I didn't really have to pay rent, wouldn't have been possible because I took out personal debt, credit card debt, 
you know, I was paying for, for things. And so that was really challenging. And I definitely hit a point of burnout in 2017, right before, well, that was our last festival. So that was our last festival for many reasons. Um, but the other thing that was really challenging, it, you know, wasn't at all volunteer time. Our team was so committed and so hardworking and so wonderful. So I never had any issues with volunteers or volunteer management. Occasionally, it would be a challenge if someone's role wasn't clear specific enough, like any organization, if someone doesn't have the autonomy to do their work and don't have a clear job description and don't really know what they're doing, then they're not gonna feel empowered to do their work. But we were really careful about setting all of that up. So job descriptions were really clear, knowledge was passed on. But I think the challenge was just make, sustaining the festival. I mean, you'll speak to any festival director in this country or anywhere in the world. Festivals are not financially sustainable for the most part. They're just so many overhead costs. Um, there's so many un kind of, what's what I'm looking for, I guess, unknown factors like ticket sales and income. So we had some core funding from the universities. We had ticket sales and income. We sold a bit of merchandise. We tried to do a fundraiser, but trying to balance all of that and manage those relationships without a co-director or without a managing director um, was challenging. And I appreciate that on that level of the organization, trying to get someone in voluntarily to do that was hard. I did speak to a few people who couldn't commit for all the reasons I mentioned personally impacted me, but just maintaining those relationships with the universities that were funding us. Our last festival didn't, it, our last festival took place in 2017 because Plunder pulled out. Now, some of that was because I hadn't maintained that relationship well enough. The key contact we had there left and hadn't handed anything over to the new person. I hadn't chased up that funding relationship enough. So when it came to, um, the last moment of me going, okay, can we, you know, are we gonna have our funding this year? They said, no. Um, and I said, well, this is the percentage of students that benefit from your institution. We do impact reports every year, but yeah, that relationship management, funding management, and then the personal costs of setting something up that you're not um, paid for is so challenging. And I appreciate that's a massive barrier for a lot of people to not be able to set up a project like this and run it. Um, and I also had the access to the right people in the cultural sector from my position as student union president and having a principal of a university that I was close to and worked with that was the chair of the fringe. So I also had access to people that a lot of people wouldn't have in my position otherwise. So there were a lot of things that lined up that really allowed me to do this in a way that I know wouldn't have been possible if certain factors or certain things weren't in place. Yeah, and I think that what you're talking about in terms of, you know, taking that financial hit on yourself because it's something that you're passionate about this is something that's come out, up quite a lot in the in the conversations i've been having with a lot of the people who are doing these hugely important projects that benefit entire communities entire cities even and yet they're not paying themselves because really it's like the passion project it's the passion for the project that is kind of keeping you going and, um, and I think that that's one of the big challenges that quite a lot of people have kind of um, kind of talked about as well. So what have been the sort of, in terms of like the process of, of sustaining the project, because how many years did ESAF actually run for? It ran for three and a half years. Okay. And in the sustaining portion of it, like how, like what were the biggest challenges and what were the biggest successes as well in that, in that time? I think the biggest challenges for us were actually scale because 
in our first year, as I mentioned, it was one week, uh, six venues, three core venues and three partner venues. So we didn't have to manage three of those. And I think it was about 273 artists. I know I remember all of this, 273 artists. Um, and I think we had 12 members of our committee and then 50 volunteers and about a thousand and a half people came to the festival. By year two, that had grown. And by year three, the festival ran over four weeks. We were working with 500 artists, 7,000 people, sorry, five and a half thousand people came. It was seven and a half thousand overall. Um, and it was 15 venues. <laughs> and just like managing all of the aspects of the program. I mean, some of those venues, five or six of them were partner series. So again, we weren't managing them ourselves, but just being able to manage an operation like that, completely voluntary, was a massive challenge. But the success was that we supported so many artists. I mean, so many artists that I see today, I see their careers. Um, I know that ESAF, because they tell me, I know that ESAF was that launch pad and that platform for them. I walked past the Bailey Gifford building and see four pieces of work in the lobby that were purchased at the festival. Um, I'm seeing artists that are working for other arts organizations or have their own practice and gain the skills they needed because of the festival. And those were things that were so intangible. You know, we weren't, we were getting feedback. We weren't capturing all of this and we didn't need to, you know, I go, I go to arts events or I did before the pandemic. Um, in Edinburgh, I think about the John Byrne Award because they have, it's national and they'd have their awards and the number of ESAF artists, I don't know if they call themselves that, that would then apply or had applied to the John Byrne Award were confident. I mean, our impact was huge and just building relationships across the cultural and creative sector, both ways with venues, with, with arts organizations, with the artists and, and feeding back to the institutions to say, you need to do better. You need to equip your students better. Um, that was the biggest success and also i know the skills that the team members gained you know they the amount of recommendations i wrote for other job opportunities the number of spin-offs that came out of that so adam castle who runs a show called pollyanna during the fringe set up the edinburgh artist moving image festival after being um the visual arts curator for the first year of the edinburgh student arts festival there's just so much impact that i see um, that made it all worth it. And I know it was worth it for everyone that participated, even from a kind of programming, curatorial, voluntary marketing standpoint. You know, I think someone, an, a visual artist, a graphic designer, having to design a 35 page program for the first time, you know, it's a huge piece of work. And we did pay people that were doing bits of work for us. We had funding for that. So I'd say that was the biggest impact, but the challenge was scale funding and managing that growth in such a short period of time. Wow, it just sounds like such a fundamental project, like something that like, you know, like you say, it's created all of these other projects off the back of it. It's kind of, it's even if it's not no longer, you know, um, it's, you're no longer running that space, it's the impact of it is lasting. It's sustaining itself through all of the other projects and through the the practice of the artists that um, it's, it's developed and helps as well. So that's incredible. Um, if you were speaking to someone who was looking to start up something similar, I don't know what would be similar to it, to be honest, um, or who was inspired by your work, what would you tell them and what would you warn them of? I would tell them to 100% go for it because it's always worth it. And 
I would share with them that this community and this mighty wee bit of an island is very supportive. It's very, my experience has been collaboration over competition. There wasn't a single person I asked for a coffee, I asked for help, I asked for support that didn't provide it, that didn't give it very happily. And if they couldn't, they referred me on to someone else. So I think there's just so much support out there for this. There's something very special about running a festival in Scotland <laughs> that I think um, there's a lot of solidarity and support there. Um, what I would say is think about your financial situation. I'm definitely not gonna say I wouldn't have done it that way because it was my life and that's how it happened and I regret nothing. Um, but the, the physical, physical, yes, physical, the financial strain and impact, I still feel today, I'm still in my overdraft, I still have credit card debt, I'm still kind of dealing with the financial knock-on of that, and it's only uh, six years after it that I'm just like getting my head over the waterline around the negative financial impact that had on me. So, and I know that not everyone would be that risky because they wouldn't have been able to. So I'd say to this person from a warning of really look after yourself first. And that comes from finances, that comes from boundaries. I was a massive overworker and recovering perfectionist, probably not recovering, perfectionist at the time. And the amount of hours and the culture I set within our organization was not great. You know, I was sending people messages at 3 a.m., emails at 3 a.m., 4 a.m., and it was only later that I really realized, I knew how not, not great that was, not healthy that was from a boundary standpoint, but I only really understood later on in life and later on after the festival ended, the stress and the impact was, it had on the team. And so I'm just more conscientious, conscientious. I know my boundaries better. I have a better balance, but when it's a passion project, that's the warning. It's so easy to throw everything into it. And just having that perspective that it might be a passion project for other people, but as a founder, it's very different. And just having a steering group, a group of volunteers, mentors. I love accountability circles, you know, having a circle of two or three other people that are also running projects that might not be similar to yours to check in, just to have a sounding board and to have someone to say, hey, maybe you're pushing too hard, or maybe you need to take a step back from this, or what you know what boundaries are you putting in place to look after yourself because as you've mentioned this has been the case for so many people running projects and i think it's really easy for us to well be exploited in the arts and creative sector and cultural sector but to exploit ourselves because of the culture and the lack of resources and what we feel is a need we need to fill but no job no project no passion is worth your energy and health <laughs> never uh, even if it feels that way <laughs> So that's my advice. <laughs> I think that's incredible advice. Um, I think that, you know, going into so many areas, like from the personal to the professional and, and back again. And yeah, like you, you've obviously learned a lot through the process of doing this um, and you continue to like do this type of work. You know, you've not, it's not really slowed you down. So I know that um, people who will be listening to this will be able to glean that, um, you're, even though there's there's been those issues around like you know finance and all that kind of stuff there's still that passion and that vigor for you within this um the work that you do um I'm gonna ask around funding just because um scan sparks is trying to develop a seed fund for um future grassroots projects in terms of funding did you feel that you that there was a specific funding body that you could apply to and did you feel that they were approachable 
So I didn't. And I obviously thought about applying for Creative Scotland funding on several occasions. And because the funding application was so long, because we weren't well established, I've had several conversations with the team there. So lots of conversations with the creative industries team because they, they recognize the skills, um, economic side of what we were doing and the impact it was having on supporting the next generation. But our, our legal structure, or our work was never quite the right fit. It either wasn't sustainable enough and profitable enough to be considered creative industries, but then the festival team, we were told not to go that way because we were a social enterprise. So we were often caught between a rock and a hard place. And so I found that I was constantly turning to social enterprise funding because we weren't a registered charity. So applying for charitable grants and funding for cultural organizations or artists also we were not eligible for. So I think for seed funding, it's really important that it's flexible enough for different legal structures, different types of organizations, incorporated or not, social enterprise or not, charity or not, that allows for projects to really be funded and seeded properly. I also think the amounts were always an issue because it was either a couple hundred pounds up to two and a half K or then huge. You know, it was never like 5K or seven and a half. It would go from two and a half K to 10. And, you know, the couple hundred pounds would be really helpful for specific things. But I think when it comes back to sustaining someone, I actually think seed funds should invest in people and the people behind the projects, not the project themselves. And I think so much seed funding is great to start a project because that's easier to measure. You have a project plan, there's a start and an end, and you can, you can evaluate it. But actually investing in a person so united, no, sorry, unlimited and first port were good ports of call because they had seed funding that was, I think, up to 10 or 15K to support a social entrepreneur. And that was super competitive. So I often didn't get it. But I like their model of we're investing in you as the founder rather than the, the idea, because a lot of investors, you know, really high growth investors in big companies will say, they're investing in the idea and the team and they want to know the team behind it is worth investing in because you can have a great idea, but if it's not the right people doing it, it's not going to fly, you know? And I think that principle comes back to the arts and cultural sector because we have such an issue with fair pay and fair work. We have such an issue with people working freelance and are self-employed with zero protections. We have such an issue with freelancer fees and a lack of transparency around people sharing their rates. We have such an issue with not paying people to speak or to do things. And I really think that the only way we can address that is to have seed funding that funds projects, because obviously we want things to happen, but that puts the person first. Yeah, I think that's really important as well. And I think that, you know, um, what you're kind of getting at a little bit more than anything is trust. It's about the yeah. trusting the people who are wanting to do these projects that they're going to deliver them. That as it's a passion for them, they're going to do everything in their power and their ability to make it happen. And if they're actually, you know, given the support that they need, then then they'll be able to do that without completely burning themselves out. Um, so what apart from money do you feel was necessary to get this project off the ground? I think you've talked a little bit about, you know, in kind and all of that kind of stuff. But is there anything else that you think was really important? There was so much free training and there were so many resources I had access to that would not, that I couldn't. So if I didn't have all of that training and those free resources, I would not have been able to set up the festival. So things like 
sessions on governance, on legal structures for setting up the organization, management accounts and finances, bookkeeping, sessions on how to um, structure a team. When I think about uh, the melting pot and that incubator program, it was the most incredible education on what a social enterprise truly is, because not only was it about evaluation and monitoring, social impact measurement, finance, um, project management, uh, resources on how to set up and run a social enterprise, it instilled an ethos in me around what social enterprises are, which are open source community led organizations that are, as we know, are working to um, basically their own extinction. You know, social organizations are addressing a social cause that shouldn't exist. And if they do their jobs well, they won't exist by the time they're done. And that whole community of sharing knowledge. So a lot of social enterprises share everything, their accounts, their business model, their contacts, because it is very much about supporting organizations like theirs to set up anywhere, while also recognizing that a person running a social enterprise in one place, in one community, whether or not that's geographic or sector-wise, knows that community, knows how to listen to and support that community and cannot replicate that anywhere else. It's not about uh, franchising. So that whole ethos of understanding the values behind social enterprises and how to establish that in a culture and an organization was so important. But yeah, the training, the guidance, the resources. I mean, I still refer back to all of the documents I have from those months of incubator programs. If I need to check something about Companies House compliance or Oscar, or if I need to check something about what's a good social impact measurement tool. And so it's not just about the funding, it's about the mentoring and support around it. And it's also about um, access and support to peers, you know, that peer support element. I was in that incubator with 20 people and by the end of it, 10, it was 10 of us in total. And we were all in the same position trying to do different things, but at the same stage of our project. And that's a community that I still rely on, check in with, uh, speak to now. So that was really fundamental. Wow. It sounds like, yeah, there was just so many things that went into making ESAF possible. Like it's it's almost like um, difficult to comprehend because, you know, sometimes we just see a, a project as like this person did a thing. You don't get to understand the full, like all of the ways that um, things are structured and all of the, the little bits and the larger parts of it as well. Um, I think that, yeah, this has been such an incredible conversation already and I'm like, not even started talking about Fringe of Colour yet. Um, <laughs> so um, would, you would you have done anything differently in hindsight if you were to go back and sort of start again from scratch and you were just starting afresh, even from the days when you were still at the student um, union, is there anything that you would have done differently? Yes, I think I would have been more careful about protecting my intellectual property. Mm. So I don't think it anything went wrong, but the whole process of dealing with a co-founder that was taking credit for things that I did that, that uh, you know, they didn't do, or having to negotiate an agreement with the students' union because I was an employee there and I set up the festival while I was there, technically their IP, and their idea. So I had to get a written letter that had to be approved by the board of the Students Association. 
for me to then take my own project and run it, you know? So they're just, and, and so many artists and creatives don't know their rights when it comes to this sort of thing. So it all ended up well, but I wish I'd known that before I started it and I would have maybe protected what I was doing a bit more. GDPR hadn't come into place in the same way. So that was all right, but uh, I'm sure that from a GDPR standpoint, there are lots of things that we would have to change. <laughs> um, but I think besides that, I wouldn't have done anything differently. I think um, it, it was a beautiful thing that happened in the way it did. And I think that besides being more aware of how I was impacting my team um, with my late night emails and lack of boundaries that I would have changed as well. But I think besides the IP and the work culture and, and balance, no, it would have all happened the same way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think these other things that you're talking about are things that you've brought forward into, you know, your the current projects you're doing and the future projects that you're gonna do as well. Um, I'm going to move on to talk about Fringe of Colour now because you are the new director of Fringe of Colour, which was um, initially uh, founded by Jess Bruff, who I've also had a lovely conversation with as well. So when it comes to Fringe of Colour, can you discuss what excites you about the new role and what you hope to achieve in it? Yes, I was so pleased to join the team as, as creative director and the thing that's been so refreshing about Fringe of Colour is that it's a Black POC queer-led space. I've never had the opportunity to work in a space exclusively Black POC and queer before. And though I've always worked with marginalised groups and identities and found community and solidarity, being in an organisation that's queer and that's Black is just completely different. It's trauma-informed, it's care-led, um, these are things that I've spent so much of my life thinking about just because I do a lot of work separate to my arts work around trauma and healing. So we have a healing consultant this year uh, as part of our festival, uh, Sky, who's incredible from South Africa. And just the fact that this fits so well with the ethos that I really believe in are just embedded in the way that the festival operates is so wonderful. And then the other part is just having a great team. You know, the other challenge from my ESAF days is I was really doing it on my own. There was no other co-director support, but Jess and I work together on everything. Jess has definitely taken a step back because they're a technical director. So they're focusing on the website, ticketing platform, accessibility, making sure things are functioning. And I'm doing everything else except for the kind of editorial writing side of things. So I'm supporting the team, managing the team, running the program, designing it, you know, organizing things, which is what I love to do. Um, so it's just been really refreshing that the values and ethos of the organization align so much, but it's just a great group of people and it's structured well enough that it runs well. <laughs> I know that sounds like such a basic thing to say, but it's true. You know, I don't think that a lot of festivals, arts organizations have that right. Like they don't get it right. And it's to no fault of their own. It's just capacity, people, but having that balance and structure is so important. Yeah, it sounds like a really nourishing space as well, that like, you know, just being able to like leave, there's some, certain things that you, you are able when you're working with other queer POC that you can leave at the door. You don't have to explain certain things. And the fact that, you know, that sense of um, 
running the, the, the project, running the organization with care at the center of it is so important. Um, well, I'm going to end our conversation there because I think that I've already had a really amazing conversation with Jess about, um, you know, how it came to be and what, where it's going. So um, that's amazing. And thank you so much for just being so generous with your time and being so open and also so thorough as well. You've given so much information that will be really valuable to anybody that listens. So thanks again, Brianna, for your time. Lawrence, thanks for having me.